Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And I'm your host, Doris Hansen. And we are grateful that you have uh, decided to join us uh, for the show this evening. Uh, we have a few announcements before we get into the show. The first announcement is for those uh, who are questioning the Mormon faith, uh, there is an outreach meeting that's taking place, the monthly outreach meeting, outreach meeting that's taking place Tuesday, uh, July 16th at 6 p.m. It's going to be at the First Baptist Church uh, in Provo. And the telephone number is 801-374-8489 for anyone who's interested in more information. And uh, we do strongly urge anyone who is making a transition to find a support group and find a support system because you do need it. And this includes polygamists as well as those who are leaving the Mormon church. Also... On July 27th from 6 until 8 p.m., AM820 Radio is hosting a dinner at the Castle in Layton, Utah, and the address is 930 West Antelope Drive. Uh, the guest speaker that evening is Christian author and speaker and radio host Hank Hanegraaff. And Hank Hanegraaff is the host of the Bible Answer Man, which is a daily radio program uh, every day at 4 p.m. on AM820 Radio. And you can go to upfc.org for more information or to get ticket tickets to this dinner. Uh, and you can listen to Hank Hanegraaff on AM820 at 4 p.m. If you have any Bible questions whatsoever, Ever. Give him a call and he'll answer your questions and he will also be answering some questions during a question and answer time that evening. So go to upfc.org for more information about this banquet. I received a letter uh, a couple of weeks ago from, uh, from a viewer that I would really like to share with you tonight. It's a rather short one, but it reads, Dear Doris and other volunteers, thank you for your time and energy in broadcasting your weekly television show. It has assisted me in leaving the Mormon church guilt-free after much struggle. Having been born and raised in Mormonism, the soul-searching has been agonizingly painful, but has finally been overcome now that your show has helped me see the light. It's difficult to express former anger when realizing how I had been deceived and brainwashed. My church callings had always been associated with Relief Society, including seven years of the first counselor in my stake, Relief Society. Please continue to broadcast your very important message Sincerely, R.W. Well, this lady did enclose a modest check asking us to apply it to our broadcast expenses. And we're grateful for her for sharing uh, how we've helped her and also for her uh, sharing to help us broadcast our show. And we would like to remind you again that no one is paid to produce our program. 
everyone, including myself, are volunteers to make it happen every week. Even our guests are volunteers uh, as if they come on as part of the show. And, and in fact, our entire ministry is donor supported. We believe what God is accomplishing through the ministry and He is accomplishing a lot. The letter I just read is a good example. Many polygamists and ex-polygamists have heard the true gospel for the very first time through this show. And the first chapter of Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of salvation, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And we want to thank all who donate to our cause and we're grateful for all who pray for us too. You can go to our webpage, uh, whatloveisthis.tv and hit the button, keep us on the air with a donation and every dime that you give in that way will go to our broadcast expenses. And to everyone who has helped and continues to help, we are so grateful. And just another note, although our show is primarily to help the polygamists know biblical truths, we obviously are also helping mainline Mormons, which this last letter that I just read testifies to. She listened to our conversations about polygamy and learned much about basic Mormon doctrine. And this is true because both polygamy and the mainline Mormon church came from the same man, Joseph Smith. As many of our uh, viewers may be aware, James T. Harmston was the leader of the True and Living Church polygamy group in Manti, Utah, and he died of a heart attack a couple of weeks ago. Um, the moment he died, James T. Harmston met his maker, and his maker has said that he hates polygamy. Next week, we have planned a show to discuss James T. Harmston, some of his activities and the polygamy group that he started. And uh, we have a very special guest coming to help share in broadcasting that show. So tune in next week for an interesting and heartbreaking, fascinating and chilling account of James T. Harmston and the TLC polygamy group in Manti, Utah. Our guest tonight has been a guest several times in the past, and we love having him on the show. He answers callers' questions and their doubts with gentleness and with facts, and he knows Mormonism and Mormon history better than most Mormons know it, and he has written several books and articles about Mormonism and early Mormonism. And tonight we're going to discuss his latest book entitled Answering Mormon's Questions, written by Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson. Please note that polygamists are included in our definition of Mormonism on this show. There are many questions that polygamists should have about their Mormon-based faith, and tonight we will endeavor to answer some of them. So I'd like to introduce our special guest and thank him, and thank you for coming again, Bill McKeever. Thank you, Doris. Good to be with you. <laughs> it's always good to have you with us. And you did write this book um, along with Eric Johnson, Answering Mormon's Questions. Mm -hmm. And so would you tell our viewers why you wrote it and how they could get a copy? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I wrote Answering Mormon's Questions a long time ago. This was back in the 1980s. And it was self-published for a while, and then Bethany House picked it up, and then... Uh, they carried it for a while, and then we decided we wanted to revamp the whole thing. Because after a while, you know, even though we, were, I, when I originally wrote it, I didn't try to date it in any way. A lot of the material that was in the original uh, edition was certainly pertinent today. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of things that have happened since the early oh, 1980s yeah. <laughs> till now. And so Eric came up with the idea of how about just rewriting the whole thing. Uh -huh. And so we did. So he came up with a lot of the bells and whistles. Uh, he's got the imagination. I don't have that. So <laughs> he, 
he came up, for instance, with the response questions. And one, one of the things that we wanted to do in this is, oftentimes when you're talking with a Latter-day Saint, they'll ask a question and you really don't know where they're going with the question. So by having a few response questions that we can you know, give back to the Mormon who's talking to us, it kind of clarifies for us, if we're going to communicate effectively, where the Mormon is kind of going with this question. Mm -hmm. And so while they are asking certainly questions that are on their heart that they want us to answer, we're kind of wanting to know too where they're coming from. Sure. And, and that's kind of why we did that. But the book was put together that uh, a person could use it in a small group setting. In fact, I'm using it right now. Uh, I don't know if we're ever going to get done with this thing. <laughs> so 30 some <laughs> chapters uh, to the book. But I'm actually going through it one chapter at a time with my small group at my house. Oh, and, wow. And so um, it's, it's, been, it's been fun, and it works. Uh, and I'm kind of using my, my small group as a guinea that, pig. That's you know, cool. So. Yeah, that's, that's a good <laughs> so, way to do it. That's good. Yeah. So they can buy your book. Where can, where can they pick it up? And you do have a website, too. That you... they, they can get it directly from us. They can get it at mrm.org in our bookstore, or they can get it at uh, Utah Lighthouse Bookstore carries it. Or uh, I think Lifeway's carrying it. There are Christian oh. bookstores carry it. Get it off of Amazon, so it's not difficult to get yeah. a hold of it. Yeah, I think so. you just Google answering Mormon's questions, and probably mm -hmm. if they need to, to find the place to buy it. Okay, so uh, the Utah Lighthouse would be utlm.org if you wanted to go on the website for that, or mrm.org for Bill's uh, website. So what I'd like to do is talk about some of the chapters and some of the questions uh, that you have in the book, questions that are most frequently asked or more interesting questions uh, for those who are caught up in Mormonism, whether it's fundamentalists or the Mormon church. I've sure. noticed those questions are certainly A lot of them, uh, yeah, they would be pertinent to a person that's in a polygamous group. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the first one is in, in section one, chapter six, and the question is the question, and the questions are asked by them, not us. Yes, these not are, us to them, but them the, to us. Right. These are actual questions that we have heard when we're on the streets talking with Mormons, or I've received in emails, or phone calls from Latter Day Saints. These are actual questions that we hear. They're not. Mm -hmm. They're not really made up. Now, some of them we had to kind of tweak a little bit for the book format, mm -hmm. but sure. but still, they are basic questions that we hear all the time. Mm -hmm. And this next this question I hear all the time as well. So uh, the question is, why do so many people equate our church to splinter groups when we no longer practice polygamy? So that's this a, is the mainline church asking about the polygamy question. Sure, and I think one of the reasons why a lot of people misunderstand and think that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints headquartered here in Salt Lake City is akin to a lot of the, the fundamentalist groups is probably because the Mormon Church has done such a bad job in selling itself <laughs> on this issue. And the reason why I think they've done a bad job in selling themselves is because they've been inconsistent. They, they act as if they don't really believe in polygamy anymore. And many times some of their leaders have actually said that we no longer believe in polygamy, we no longer practice polygamy, but yet their own scripture betrays them. Right. If you look at section 132, right. it's most certainly talking about polygamy. That was the context in which it was written, uh, the revelation as it was supposedly uh, written down in 1843. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was given to Joseph Smith in 1831 or so, he said. But uh, still, uh, the fact that you have Mormon leaders right now practicing a, a type of polygamy, celestial polygamy, that certainly gives it away. And when people start to find out some of these issues, 
they start to be a little bit suspicious, and as they should be. I, yeah. I think the Mormon church has set themselves up for this kind of a confusion mm -hmm. because they're not very clear, and the way they practice is not very clear. I mean, when they tell us that they don't believe in polygamy anymore, now we know that's not true. That isn't true. Of course it isn't all. true. They, do, they don't practice it the way it was in the 19th century. It's wrong in the Mormon church today to have two living wives, but certainly a man can be sealed to more than one wife and mm -hmm. has every hope of being married for eternity to those wives in the next mm -hmm. life. And that right there proves they still believe in it. Sure. Or they wouldn't be doing that. Yeah, and so when people catch wind of this or they, they read their scripture, or they read comments from Mormon leaders talking about how polygamy will be practiced in the hereafter, well, it's natural for someone who might not know all the nuances about Mormonism to conclude that there might be some kind of connection here. Even though you and I would agree that there's, they're wrong on that. Yeah. There, there isn't a connection per se, but in that area, certainly there are some overlapping areas mm -hmm. that a person who's not really familiar with Mormonism would, would probably uh, conclude. And there's not, it hasn't been very many years that the, some of the Mormon leadership said that polygamy would be reinstated for the millennium, mm -hmm. which is even sooner than the hereafter for some people yeah. in some, well, they yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of them say it's a dead issue, but we have polygamy in the news every single day. It's not sure. a dead issue. No, it's not a dead issue at all. What, what the Mormon church, if they really want to solve this problem, is they need to tell the people that polygamy has absolutely nothing to do with their religious beliefs, either in the here and now or in the now and then, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and they're not about to do that. I yeah. mean, there's every reason, there's a reason why you have, for instance, three Mormon apostles that were all three widows, widowers, I should say, and who married again in the temple for time and eternity to mm -hmm. women who were not sealed to other men. Now, Dallin Oaks, I'm sure, El mm -hmm. Tom Perry, mm -hmm. uh, Russell Nelson have every intention of being married to these second wives that they have been sealed to. Otherwise, why be sealed to them in the first place? That's right. It should have been only for time, but it's not. Yeah. And when you have Dallin Oaks, for instance, saying that his second wife is going to be his eternal partner, well, what do you think he means by that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what happened to June, his first wife? His first Does wife. she get kind of pushed off into the corner? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. And so they, they've actually uh, made their own problems on this issue. Well, they have most of their own problems at least. And it's too bad they don't listen to Jesus because he said there's no marriage in heaven anyway. So that would simplify the whole thing if they would just listen to him and throw out the rest. You're asking a lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to quote Spencer W. Kimball, and I realize that Spencer W. Kimball is not necessarily um, who, who the polygamist would listen to, for sure, but this is a very important quote. He said, and this is a, is a second question for you, mm -hmm. uh, presumptions and blasphemy, blasphemous are those, are they who, ex who purport to baptize, bless, marry, or perform other sacraments in the name of the Lord, while in fact lacking his specific authorization, end quote. Now, I have to say here, this, this is a, a quote that Spencer Kimball made, but the polygamists would ask the Mormons the same question because they think the Mormons are apostates from the original church in which, in which they are. But the question is in section 2, chapter 11 of your book, where do you get your authority? Well, we get our authority directly from Jesus. Uh, all of us that come to faith in Jesus Christ are given what's called the royal priesthood. It's not an Aaronic priesthood or a Melchizedek priesthood as, as Mormons believe. But then 
they themselves have a problem trying to apply that type of a priesthood to themselves. For instance, with, when it comes to the tribe of Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, you had to be of the family of Aaron. Mm -hmm. I mean, any usurper coming from outside trying to gain that kind of position, that was a death penalty in theocratic right. Israel. It you was. just didn't do that. As far as the Melchizedek priesthood, certainly there was a priest named Melchizedek in the Old Testament, but we don't find anywhere in the New Testament of anyone holding this Melchizedek priesthood other than when it talks about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You won't find Peter, James, and John, for instance, ever talking about having this Melchizedek priesthood authority. And you would think if it was that important, there would at least be some mention yeah, in it. Now, a Mormon might say, well, guidelines or something well you would think so, but a Mormon, I, I've actually heard them say things like, well, it was because it was so commonly known, they didn't have to say anything about it. <laughs> well, you could make that rule apply to just about anything. Then, then I think there's a, probably a lot of things that were very commonly known during the New Testament time so period. So is that so, doctrine by silence? Is I, that what Well, it is? that would be certainly an argument from silence, which is not a good argument to use. Right. Uh, but usually when you have to use an argument from silence, it's, it's because you don't have other good arguments to use. That's mm -hmm. one of the last of the arguments and, you would want to, to use. And they have to have something to back up what they believe. So what is this royal priesthood? Well, basically, it's, it's an authority that we get as sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into, you might say, the family of God. So he gives us that authority. Now, instead of offering the sacrifice of animals and such, we offer sacrifices of praise and prayers unto the Lord. And certainly, we are authorized by him to do the work of God. And so certainly, it is important. It, it's not something, though, that we constantly turn to or mention, I find, as Mormons would say, well, it's the priesthood authority that gets everything done. We, we give all the glory back to Jesus. Right. And Jesus gave the authority to his disciples. Mm -hmm. And disciples are those who follow Jesus yes. according to the guidelines of the Bible, not, who are, not them making up their own guidelines. But Certainly. he gave the authority in Matthew 28 mm -hmm. uh, before he ascended into heaven. Mm -hmm. He gave that authority to us. So that's where we get our authority. It comes directly from God Himself through Jesus, that's no doubt. It does. Okay, in section 3, chapter 13, the question that is asked, and this is very good because uh, we know, and we've talked about this on the show a lot, that, that the, the Mormon culture um, believes in a pre-existence of mortals before mortality mm -hmm. and, and before who, time began. I guess I don't know, but uh, and and of course the Bible says the opposite that the spiritual did not come first, the physical did. Their question that is most often asked is, didn't the prophet Jeremiah allude to the premortal existence of mankind? Were you talking about when be, before you were born I knew you? Mm -hmm. They were talking about that passage. Well, certainly. God knew who Jeremiah was, but there's no hint in that passage that Jeremiah knew who God was at that time. And I think that's key. Mm -hmm. uh, a Mormon could easily take that verse and try to use his presupposition of a premortal existence and make that, try to make that work. But again, it, it's, it's certainly reading something into the passage that's not there, what we would call eisegesis yeah. rather than exegesis, yeah. getting something out of the passage. So I, w I would think that would be quite a stretch to say just because God, who we believe to be all-knowing, omniscient, mm -hmm. certainly would know all things before those things ever happened. And so that's, that's no surprise to us. But to assume that that somehow means that we all existed as sons and daughters of God and Heavenly Mother prior to our mortality here on earth is quite a stretch. 
but but that's not unusual in, in Mormonism because they often do that because their 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 authority to interpret the Bible doesn't really come from the Bible itself. It comes from having to look at the Bible through the lens of what Joseph Smith taught. And I find that whenever I'm watching KB at KBYU and they're having a little round table and they're discussing things out of the Bible and such, it's amazing how many times they have to go back to, well, what did Joseph Smith say about this? Uh-huh, I've you know, noticed that and, as yeah, well. And, and that, that can be very dangerous, but we see mm -hmm. that happen a lot. But because what he says about it seems to be more important than what the Bible or what Jesus mm -hmm. said about these particular things. So as far as the, the Bible is concerned, there was no preexistence of our spirits in any way, shape, or form before we were created. There's no um, allusion to that. None at all. No, certainly it talks about the pre-existence of Christ. There's Only no he pre-existed. Yes. Exactly. Okay, uh, chapter 17, the question that is asked is, why do you emphasize the cross? Why highlight Christ's suffering and death? And then uh, in that chapter, John Piper is quoted, I love this quote, and he said, I quote, there is no salvation by balancing the records. There is only salvation by canceling records. Hmm. Now, and of course, this is the way I was raised, that um, if I had this many good deeds and, and this many bad deeds, I wouldn't make it because my... Kind my, of like Islam. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if I had this many good deeds and this mm -hmm. many bad deeds, I would make it. And what he's saying is there's no salvation by balancing, no. but the salvation is only by canceling. Mm -hmm. These sins have to be canceled. Our sins have to be forgiven. They have to be taken out of the way. And that's what the cross that's is That's what on. the cross is all about. And, and you, the initial question is, well, why do we emphasize the cross? Well, one of the things is, one of the reasons why is Paul emphasized the cross. Mm -hmm. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. He doesn't say for the preaching of the garden. I mean, I don't even, you couldn't even make a case from the Book of Mormon that if the Nephites really existed, that they believed in anything like a garden atonement. There's just no mention of it's this. Not there. Uh, you're not going to find it anywhere there. They would have not understood anything like that. And yet this idea that somehow Jesus suffered in the garden and that's where the atonement took place becomes very puzzling for us because I think now because Christians have been uh, kind of getting on the Mormon's case about this, now they're kind of throwing in the cross. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even though the Book of Mormon does talk about a, a cross atonement, but they're now throwing this in. Uh, I think maybe to save face, I don't know. But now they're saying the atonement was both in the garden and on right. the cross. Mm -hmm. That becomes confusing because you have some writers that say that he atoned for all the sins of mankind in the garden. So if he atoned for all the sins of mankind in the garden, what's left for him to atone for on the cross? Exactly. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's where the blood, they say the blood, when he sweat blood, that was the blood that right. was shed for our yeah, sins. As it were, drops of blood. Right. Uh, but um, there, there's been some recent books on this, and, and there's one that I want to get a hold of that, that talks about this uh, kind of evolutionary thought in Mormonism. And some believe that it actually goes back to President David O. McKay, that that's where the atonement in the garden was more strongly emphasized uh, in recent years. But it didn't begin with him. I don't think it began no. with him, but I mean the strong emphasis may be going back to the 1950s or 40s or something like that. Uh -huh. But uh, certainly you do find in the Book of Mormon, because I think there's a lot of... Uh, 
Protestant teaching in the Book of Mormon. I, I've often said many times that I don't get the impression when I read the Book of Mormon that I'm reading about ancient Mormons. They sound more like confused Protestants, but it does talk about the cross in the Book of Mormon. Uh -huh. So it would be easy for the Mormons if they were just to go back to the Book of Mormon and, and use it and say, okay, that's where our emphasis is going to lie. But they don't. They no. go to a section in the Doctrine and Covenants and, and this is where they get the idea of this garden atonement that comes about. And also in the Bible it tells us uh, one reason that we emphasize the cross, of course, is our sins. Um, but in the communion, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says in, when we do the communion, it says, do this in remembrance right. of me. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and remembering my death, remembering his death Correct. until he comes back. So it's specifically to remember the cross. That's why, that's why I was very perplexing when, when uh, Gordon Hinckley made that statement when he's taking the tour, I think it was of the Mesa Temple, and he was with a, a Christian pastor, if I remember the story correctly, and the Christian pastor mentions how there are no crosses on this building. And that's when Hinckley comes out with that statement that, well, we want to remember the living Christ, not the dying Christ. In reading that, I go, oh, wait a minute, when they partake of the sacrament, isn't that exactly what they're doing? And they do that quite often. But they so, don't do it for that reason. Well, the, the, the fact is, is that's what it was supposed it's to be supposed about. It's supposed to be, right, exactly. <laughs> so, if they want to be consistent. Okay. <laughs> exactly, but consistency is not right. one of their high points. Uh, in chapter 18, the question that they ask is, how can you believe in a God who would send his children to an eternal hell? And you quote in that pass in that chapter, Second uh, Nephi nine nineteen, and this is what it says: "O oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy One of Israel, for He delivereth His saints from that awful monster, the devil, and death and hell, and that lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment." Now, most polygamists would believe in that verse, lock, stock, and barrel. Mm -hmm. They do believe in that, but mm -hmm. the Mormon Church has pulled away from it. Except for apostates, yeah. uh, they get to go there, but... Yeah, they, they talk about, of course, uh, you know, the sons of perdition and who can actually even qualify for that. I mean, that, that even, even that area is very cloudy within Mormonism. They like to use that title as more of a threat than mm -hmm. being actual. I mean, first of all, they have you know, complete knowledge of Mormonism to, to leave the church, uh, to know it's true and to fight against it. Most of the people that I know of that come out of the Mormon church they come out of the church because they know it's wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and so if they are, quote unquote, fighting against the church, it's because they believe it to be wrong and are trying to help people know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. But I think the key word there is they talk about his children. Well, we don't hold to the belief that all humans are the literal children of God. Well, the Bible says that's, that we're, that's not true. Well, I know. And so they're looking at as God is going to punish his own children. That, that becomes problematic for us because I wouldn't hold to that position. Right. So, but as far as eternal punishment, the Bible certainly does speak about that. The, uh, Jesus spoke of that often. Mm -hmm. And if there was no eternal punishment, then why would phrases like perish even come up in the conversation if there was no such thing as to be some type of punishment for those who were not forgiven of their sins. Mm -hmm. Why would those words even be part of the conversation? It doesn't make sense. But because there is going to be a punishment for those who are unforgiven, those that have refused to put their trust in what Jesus did for them on the cross, it, I mean, if they reject that gift, then certainly they are left to what? 
their own works. Okay, if they're going to be judged according to their works, think about that. Mm -hmm. Th this is the problem that I have, mm -hmm. especially in Mormonism. It's not that I downplay the fact that many Latter-day Saints are working very hard to be very good people. But why are they doing that? I find that in my conversations with Latter-day Saints, the reason that they're doing those things is because they want to get something out of God. Mm -hmm. It's an exchange here. They want to get their They do their reward. good works in order to get what God has to offer them. So basically every work that they perform is, is grounded in a selfishness. They're doing it for themselves. It's never for wholly for the glory of God. Now some might question, well, can a sinful human being who's innately sinful ever do something wholly for the glory of God? That's a great question. That's one that I wrestle with because I think most of us as Christians would admit that as much as we want to do something wholly for the glory of God, we tend to wonder sometimes, did I do it to be seen? Did I do it for this person to see what I'm doing here? And so there is that tendency for that sinful nature mm -hmm. to pop it up. It does. It pops up in yes, all of it. Yes, it does. In all it that does. we do. Mm -hmm. Praise God for His grace and forgiveness. So, um, and that's a very, very touchy, touchy um, um, subject. Uh, is the, is the eternal hell, the eternal punishment oh, yeah, is absolutely. so hard. It's, well, it's sure difficult it for us sure to even to, to grasp that, but it's something that God has taught. Okay, section four, chapter 23. The question that is asked is, wouldn't you like to have your marriage and family endure for all eternity? Obviously talking about the eternal family. Would I personally? I have a pretty good family, so that's not so bad, but I wonder about some who don't have the greatest of families, if they would really want that. <laughs> um, our, our, here, here's the problem that I have here. Why is it that I long to be in heaven? Why is it that I long to be there? I long to be there in the presence of my Savior. I long to be there because of what He has done for me. I remember and I've seen this more than once, there's a D DVD that they play before you go through a temple open house, and it's Jeffrey Holland. And he's talking about how it just wouldn't be heaven with his family not there. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people watching that, and I know because I've been in the room when this video's playing and there's a lot of Mormons around me and they're kind of just, you know, all dreamy-eyed listening to this man talk about obviously is a very good relationship with his family. But he says it in a way that quite honestly, Doris, made me sick. Oh yeah? Because he says it in a way where he, he talks about it being with his family, being with his children, and if they weren't there, it would not be heaven for me. Hmm. And I'm thinking, where's Jesus in all this? Oh yeah. There's no mention of him. There's no mention of, you know, not, well, I should say it this way. It would seem that it wouldn't be heaven for him if his family wasn't there, but okay, assuming, just assuming, that he would be in the presence of Jesus, wouldn't that be enough? Now, I'm sure all of us want our family members we want our families to be there. in heaven. Absolutely. And I've had conversations with Mormons on this because, first of all, when you see the films of the Mormons being together forever in heaven, it's usually only three generations. It's the children, the mom and dad, and the grandparents. Now, I asked a sister missionary about this when I was going uh, at, at the St. George Temple. I said, well, how far does this family extend? And she says, well, it extends all the way. And I went, what does that mean? And it sounded like what she was saying, it was going to be 
every human being, because think about it, we're all family according to Mormonism, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't, that's not really how it's portrayed in the films. It's just not portrayed that way. I would say that, okay, I believe that believers are going to be in the presence of Heavenly Father, in the presence of our Savior. I believe believers are going mm -hmm. to be there. A Mormon might say, well, that doesn't sound fair, but technically Mormonism is really not much different than that. Because in Mormonism, if you're not keeping celestial law, you're not qualified for the perks of the celestial kingdom. And one of those perks is being with your family. I've asked Mormons this, if you have a family member who's not keeping celestial law, will they enter into the celestial kingdom? They have to say no. Well, where will they go? Well, possibly the terrestrial or the telestial kingdom, depending on their faith and their beliefs, I should say their works that they did in this life. Because everyone is, according to Mormonism, keeping some kind of law. Mm -hmm. Either you're keeping celestial law, Absolutely. you're keeping terrestrial law, or telestial law. What law you keep will determine where you are appointed in the next life. If you have a family member that's not doing what they're supposed to do, they're not going to end up in the celestial kingdom where this family unit is supposed to be together. So they're not together anyway. The fact is I've never met a Mormon who's going to qualify for the celestial kingdom. Nobody's going to be there if Mormonism is true. I, have, I do not know any Mormon who is keeping celestial law. I just haven't met any. Now, when I've had some people say they are keeping celestial law, well, then when I ask them a few questions, it becomes apparent that they're probably really not. Mm -hmm. That they either didn't understand what celestial law was really all about, or they merely saw it as something they hoped to achieve maybe before they died. Now, the polygamist right here would pop in and they'd say, because they're not living polygamy, that is the celestial law. Well, that would be a huge in their worldview, that world, would be right. a huge deficit, no mm -hmm. doubt about it. Now, an LDS person wouldn't, wouldn't say go that. For that. <laughs> they wouldn't right. say that at all. That's right. So. And, and you asked the question in that chapter, um, they love this doctrine. Uh, that's probably out of all the people that I talk to, polygamist or Mormon, ex-polygamist or ex-Mormon, this doctrine is the most difficult for them to, um, to understand isn't true because it's such a beautiful doctrine. The idea them, of being with their family. With their family yeah. in eternity. But yeah. uh, the question you asked in the book, does, does merely liking something to be true actually make it true? No, it certainly doesn't. That's, that's and, self deceived. And unfortunately, a lot of people, and, and, this, and this is sad even within the Christian community, because in talking with a lot of Christians who believe things that I would say are probably aberrational, usually they don't start with what the Bible actually says about the issue. They, they start with an emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's how they base their her hermeneutic, is on the emotion. Yeah. That can be very dangerous. Because there are a lot of behaviors that as Christians we should find, for instance, repugnant. And now, just because I have a family member or a friend who's involved in that particular behavior, does that mean I have to overlook all the verses that talk about that behavior? I can't. I can't in good conscience as a Christian ignore all those things. It could tear my heart out to see a friend or a family member involved in a destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I have to justify it just because they're families and friends. Right. You can't do that That's as right. a Christian. We have to go back to what the Word actually says about an issue mm -hmm. and we go from there. And we go from there. We, we, we don't get to judge the Word 
and God's doctrine. Well, we're uh, ready now to start taking telephone calls. If you would like to enter into our conversation or ask questions, comments about what we're talking about, we'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. So give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. And while we're waiting for the phone calls to come in, we do have our message we'd like to share with you. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at tv at We want you to know that we have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Also, free of charge to you is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our show tonight. I'm Doris Hansen, your host of Polygamy, What Love Is This? And our guest tonight is Bill McKeever, and we are discussing a revision of a book that he wrote what, in the 1980s, did you mm -hmm, say? Mm -hmm. uh, called Answering Mormon's Questions, and it's been revamped and revised and added to, and we're discussing um, <clears throat> information that's in that book. It's very good. It's comprehensive in the questions that you might have as you transition, or if you're even questioning the basis of your Mormon faith. There's some very good questions and some very good answers in there. Uh, so that's what we're talking about, and um, uh, we have still some more questions we'd like to ask him and we're going to talk about, but we also invite your phone calls if you want to call in and ask him any questions about these things. I'm sure that he would love to answer them for you. Uh, the next question that I have is in sa uh, section 5, <clears throat> chapter 28. And the question there is that they would ask you, to whom is Jesus referring when he mentions the other sheep in John chapter 10, verse 16? We go into quite a, a lot of detail on that, on that section because <clears throat> I think clearly what he's referring to are the Gentiles. Now, mm -hmm. the Mormon would say, no, he's talking about Nephites that are on the other side of the ocean. 
Again, that's an argument from silence. You have to have that presupposition when you approach that passage. And uh, I don't think the New Testament would ever support that. Mm -mm. However, there are a lot of verses in the Old Testament that do talk about the fact that salvation that was given to the Jews was also going to be given to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. These are those other sheep. And I, I think, I would think pretty clearly on this, that a New Testament person would probably gather that after they saw what was happening among the Gentiles and the work of Paul and such. But uh, we, we do go into that quite quite in depth. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot of Old Testament passages that we use to yeah. show that too yeah. as well. And there are a lot. There are. There's quite shown. a few. It's very clear. It's not, I, you know, I, a matter of I interpretation, right something cloudy. It's yeah. really quite yeah, clear. There's quite a bit. Yeah. Um, section 5, chapter 34. <laughs> what about the archaeology supporting the Book of Mormon? What, what solid evidences are there? Well... The problem for the Mormon church is they don't even know where to dig. Um, a few, <laughs> where to, it depends on the Mormon you're talking to. I've talked to some that believe in the limited geography theory, which of course places the Book of Mormon lands down in Central America. I've talked to Mormons who believe in what's known as the Heartland model, which places the Book of Mormon people in the North America. Mm -hmm. um, and this is like an internal war that you have among Mormons themselves. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to both camps, and uh, both of them claim that they have good arguments for what they believe. I don't think either of them has have good arguments. But they don't have any evidence. Well, Neither that's, one of them that's has a problem. If, if just go down to the History Museum and go ask to let them show you their Nephite artifacts. I've done this. I've actually gone down there and I've asked them, uh, where are your Nephite mm -hmm. artifacts? Well, uh, I'll never forget one time I did. I, I asked this lady that was behind the counter, very nice lady, and she looked at me kind of puzzled, like... We should have those, why don't we? <laughs> and so she ended up uh, going over and tapping this gentleman on the shoulder, and he was talking to some people, and he turned around, saw us, and smiled, and then came over, and, and we asked him the question again, where are your Nephite artifacts? And he smiled, and he shook his head, and he said, there are no Nephite artifacts. And he actually said that they don't even know where to look mm -hmm. for these because mm -hmm. of this division within their own church on this issue. You're not going to find Thomas Monson ever grabbing on to any one of these positions. I just can't imagine that. Now, there's been times where I think the church kind of sometimes alludes to a limited geography. Uh, sometimes they seem to allude to a, a North American setting. But I think it becomes very confusing for the average Latter-day Saint uh, because these two camps, they don't really like each other. The Rod Meldrum, Glenn Beck camp in the North American heartland model, they don't really like the limited geography people. They think they're out to lunch. The same with the limited geography people. They think the Heartland people are out to lunch. So I don't see that being settled very quickly. Well, when I was, it could be. When I, yeah, it could be. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as I was growing up, I was taught that Palmyra was New York, that mm -hmm. that's where the gold plates were found, that sure. that's where the battle was fought. And there was just, there was, of course, being young and, and all of that, not hearing any, any critical viewpoint at all of the, of the Mormon history, there, I wouldn't have dreamed that it was anywhere else yeah. but in the North American. Well, yeah, but I, I, there are a lot of BYU professors, of course, that hold to the limited geography model. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and some of the way some of these Mormon apologists write <laughs> that hold to that position, they almost like 
they laugh at anybody who holds to another position on this. Well, so that's they, an in-house argument. They, that's for them to argue it out. But what they need to do is just find find some evidence somewhere. Well, for they, they find a lot of parallelisms. But that's, they don't find evidence. Called. No, they don't find any evidence. Okay, uh, question off the air in the afterlife: who who decides who gets to be next to God? Well, in the, I think God descended. I, I think definitely God has kind of set those rules, and He's He's made the provision possible. The fact is, we are all sinners. Mm -hmm. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing that we can There's nothing that we could do that could undo the fact that we have come short of the glory of the God. The fact that we've sinned. That in and of itself tells us that we need something outside of ourselves mm -hmm. that is going to make that possible. That forgiveness of sins possible. And that's why, as we talked about earlier, coming to what we call the foot of the cross, relinquishing our own autonomy, our own ability, and, and understanding that for God to come in human flesh to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross tells us that we could not do this just do by it. being a better person tomorrow than we were today mm -hmm. and being better today than we were yesterday. We're trying to balance those scales. Exactly. He is the one that makes that decision. He has put it in his word, what is required of us. Mm -hmm. And he tells us that we need to come in faith, believing that he paid that penalty for our sins. He did it for us. He's asking to come to, to him by faith. Mm -hmm. And, and it's very clear. So he makes, that, he makes that decision. He, he's, he's already set he down the, the requirements. And, in, and the Bible says that Abraham believed God and God mm -hmm. gave him righteousness because he believed. And when, that we, was when we come it. to him in faith, it's a doctrine we call imputation. Mm -hmm. uh, we give him our sinfulness. We give him our shame. He gives us to our account his righteousness. righteousness. We are declared righteous. Right. And I think that's important for people to understand. We are declared righteous. It doesn't mean that we automatically become the good people that we probably should be because there's going to be a lot of areas that we will still fall short in. But we are declared righteous, and that's what matters. And that's the difference between being declared righteousness of God, receiving His righteousness as a gift, and self-righteousness, which is works, a mm -hmm. works righteousness. Absolutely. And that's absolutely forbidden, or rejected, I should say. Okay, we have calling from Helper, Utah, Ramona. Hello, Ramona. Yes. You're on the air? You are now on the air. What's your question? I'd like to know why the Mormon Church doesn't uh, read Joseph Smith's Bible, the inspired version by Joseph Smith. That's a good question. I mean, why, why doesn't the LDS Church officially use the Joseph Smith translation or the inspired version? Yeah, by the inspired version, yes. Yeah. Well, their argument is that, that Joseph Smith didn't finish it even though Joseph Smith himself said he did in volume one, page 368 of the documentary History of the Church. He did say that he did finish it in July of 1833. Uh, so I don't think that's a very good argument. Uh, but they do use it in a sense, because if you look at their edition of the King James, you will find that they will have either an end note or a footnote, and it will have the Joseph Smith alteration on a lot of those passages. So in in a sense, they kind of, they do use it, but they don't use it as a bound volume. Uh, there could be a number of reasons for that. I think for one, it probably would not help their missionary efforts to uh, pull out a Joseph Smith translation when talking to a Baptist mm -hmm. in, you know, in the South. Not. That might not go over very well. 
but or a Baptist here in, in the United uh, in in the United, I almost said the United States as if that South wasn't the United <laughs> States. Uh, my mistake. Uh, but you can understand how that would probably come aco- come across negatively. But it's not that they don't cite it because they certainly do. In fact, there's a lot of articles that you'll find occasionally in the Ensign Magazine where they will cite the Joseph Smith translation. They'll cite it, but they don't often quote it when they're... Well, I got the Joseph Smith Bible, and I also got the uh, missionary Bible that's got some of his uh, Bibles in it. You mean, when you say his Bible's in it, I'm kind of confused on that. You mean uh, his other works? Joseph Smith's other works? Talking about the, no, the I've got the Joseph Smith Bible. It's called the Inspired Version. Right. I got the Missionary Bible that's on the back of the King James Version. It's got some of the Joseph Smith's sayings of his Bible. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I'm still kind of confused when you say his Bible. Because the Bible, the Bible, of course, yes. would be... Joseph Smith Bible. <laughs> I don't know how you explain it. All right. Okay. <laughs> I've kind of lost on that one. Okay. Sorry. Well, did, I, I hope that uh, your question was answered, Ramona. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. Okay. We go to line two. Sharon calling from Salt Lake City. Hello, Sharon. Yes. You're on the air now. Okay. Um... I'm a lifelong, I was a lifelong member of the LDS Church. I left it after um, 66 years. I'm 68 now. And my mother was a Whitney, so we're related to oh, the Whitney that was in Alvaro. I can't remember his name, but Sarah and Whitney and all those people. But they won't even allow me to even talk about um, what I believe in. And um, I just get so frustrated, and sometimes I feel like I don't say the right things, even when I do try to slip something in. But what I'm wondering, they just get really mad at me. They they won't talk about it at all. And I was wondering, what's going to happen to my relatives in the next life? What about my parents that died believing in the Mormon Church? Um, you know, I just... <laughs> That's a, that's a tough one, Sharon. That's a tough that, that's, that is a tough question. Yeah. But it all comes back to this very important fact. Jesus provided the way for us to have the forgiveness of sins. Now, that is what I believe is, is a very big part of what we call this New Testament faith. It's not just believing that Jesus existed. I mean, good grief. You know, Book of James even says that the demons believe that, but they're not saved. But here's the thing. Do they have the faith that their sins are forgiven? Because I have Mormons all the time. They try to get very flippant with me on this, and it's not something to joke about. It's a serious issue. They'll say, well, I have faith. I go, really? Do you have the faith that your sins are forgiven right now? Now, that changes the whole discourse. Because while they'll talk about Jesus being the Savior, I want to know if they know for sure that Jesus is their Savior. And how does he become their Savior? And this is where we have a big problem with Mormonism because the Mormon church has set so many standards for the average member to follow that it's impossible for the Mormon to do it. 
and, and this is why when I say earlier that I haven't met a Mormon who has met these qualifications for celestial exaltation. I mean that quite sincerely. When you ask a Mormon if they have the faith that their sins are forgiven, that's when they usually balk. They don't know if their sins are forgiven. Well, if you don't have faith that Jesus forgave you of your sins, what kind of faith do you really have? Just a faith that he exists or has the potential to forgive you of your sins? Because that's not New Testament faith. As a Christian, we need to believe that Jesus did something for us. So we believe that he paid that penalty for our sins. And, that's, and, and to show why there's a problem for Mormons in understanding this is many times when we try to express the, the assurance that we have, it's misunderstood by Latter-day Saints as being a type of arrogance. Well, that's because they're looking at our assurance is being based on what they think qualifies them for that. Mm -hmm. And that's not what that's we're saying. Based on what the Bible it has teaches. nothing to do with what we have accomplished. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so there isn't an act of arrogance that is involved because we're admitting we are fallen sinners worthy of nothing but his judgment and condemnation. And it's only by his grace and mercy that we can hope to have that forgiveness of sins and that assurance that all is well in the next life. And I'd like to mention here too that it isn't the work, the, they, they believe it, the polygamists believe it, anything any Mormonism uh, sect believes that those works are what get you where they wanted to go, but they don't. They don't get you where they want to go. They think they do, but they don't actually. It has to be according to what the Bible teaches. I, I like to use an expression. I say, teach. I believe I'm saved by works, but it's not my works. By Jesus' works. The works of what Jesus did for me. Right. And uh, I hope to get that across to Latter day Saint <laughs> people. That's the only way you're going to have that peace that passes all understanding. That's, that's right. Anything less than that, that melding of what justifies and what sanctifies, that mixing that they do is what robs them of that assurance. Um, there's a, a question, we're, we're getting towards the end of the show here. Uh, at, the, at the end of the book, you've got 10 questions that we ask them. Yeah, the whole mm -hmm. book is the questions they ask us, but you've got some and they're very good questions. And we couldn't do them all, of course, tonight. But question number nine is, the doctrine of polygamy was abolished in 1890 with the manifesto. The curse on those with African heritage was lifted in 1978. Why did the LDS Church change its position on these issues when Alma 41 verse 8 says, quote, the decrees of God are unalterable, end quote. It's a we good have, question. We have about a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had one LDS lady when I was doing door-to-door -door work here in Salt Lake many years ago. She says, well, the decrees of God are unalterable, but they can be changed. <laughs> and uh, so... I, I, I was, I was even... <laughs> just as confused as, as you are on that. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. You would think that if God is all-knowing, he wouldn't have to make course corrections. Right. Uh, he, he just wouldn't. But yet we see Mormonism is full of course corrections, which tells me that God is not the author of this. Well, that becomes be. problematic. Even by their own scripture, he can't be the author. No. No. I there's problems with that. I, I, I just, these are huge issues yes, that I, I wish 
I, well, it's difficult because, see, Mormons believe that their God is a big one of us. Right? Mm -hmm. So maybe That's all true. those kind of confusions go with it. I don't know, but it shouldn't. And I think know? so. And then, of course, the <laughs> living prophet, what they say is more important than the dead prophet. So right. the prophet today can say something that overrides what Joseph Smith said. The doctrine of abrogation, and very similar to Islam. And it can be very confusing, there's mm -hmm. no doubt. Yeah, it could. Uh, well, we don't have time to finish all the questions um, because we're reaching the end of the show. Thank you, Bill, for coming. We do urge you to buy the book if you want to find out these questions and get some answers. We know that you will uh, be very um, entertained and informed after reading the book. Uh, the Book of Mormon claims that the plates of the records that make up the Book of Mormon were preserved by the hand of the Lord. And they believe that God supernaturally preserved the original words on the gold plate so that Joseph Smith could use them to translate the Book of Mormon. And indeed, God is able to preserve anything that He chooses to preserve and to do so any way that He chooses to do it. But those same people who claim supernatural preservation of the Book of Mormon deny supernatural preservation of the Bible. They accept that God kept his promise to keep the Book of Mormon, but they deny that he kept his promise to keep the Bible from corruption. Why? Is there a different God in charge of the Bible than there is that's in charge of the Book of Mormon? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 God promises that His Word would endure forever. And we have hundreds of ways to prove the Bible and its translations have been accurately preserved. We have thousands of manuscripts translated from the originals, which through comparisons prove the accuracy of the transmission through the centuries of our Bible. So why do those who embrace the Book of Mormon, which has no manuscript evidence, no historical, linguistic, archaeological, or any other evidence whatsoever, not even as much as a reliable geographical map. They still claim it's true, yet they reject the Bible in spite of all the evidence that it does have. And all the maps are in the back. Psalm 119 verse 89 tells us that God's Word is eternal. And eternal means forever. Biblical truth was never lost. It wasn't corrupted. It is reliable. We can trust our Bible from cover to cover. The next step is obvious. Read it and believe it. Good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.